T-minus six hours or something, and the Queen dies. Because essentially, you're being judged on whether or not you're disabled enough to represent your country. Um, do you sort of have an estimate of like how much it costs to put on um, like a World Cup level event? Welcome to another episode of the That's Not Real Climbing podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, and I'm excited to introduce my guest for today, Zoe Spriggins. Zoe is a program manager for GB Climbing and is an expert in organizing and running climbing competitions. I promise there's much more going on behind the scenes than you expect. In this episode, we'll talk about the Edinburgh World Cup disaster, organizing at World Champs, paraclimbing, and anti-doping. Hope you enjoy this episode with Zoe. Okay, so yeah, how are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? Good, good. Anything stressful going on for you? It's been a... It's been a long day, <laughs> but it's all right. <laughs> Climbing related stuff? Yeah, um, I've been working for the International Federation this afternoon. So we had the board meeting, so taking minutes and trying to stay awake. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, glad you made it through the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, related to that, I think um, a lot of people listening probably aren't familiar with you. Um, some may be. But for those who aren't familiar, um, what do you do in regards to competition climbing organization? Um, so I work for the British Mountaineering Council and I organize all the national climbing competitions in the UK. And I'm working on a major events strategy at the moment in the hopes that we can bring more international events to the UK. Is this, um, is this event something you're allowed to talk about or? The event strategy? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's a good, it's a. I'm really excited. It's a good piece of work. Yeah. Do you want to go into that a little bit right now, or? Yeah. Why not? We're on the topic. Um, so we hosted, we've hosted a few international events sporadically, and the idea is if we had a strategy, we can kind of identify solid hosting opportunities and build up a bit of a a repertoire or a bit of a bank of, hey, the UK is a great place to come to because they host really good events. So it's kind of the background uh, towards this, this strategy. Um, and so it's quite exciting to see what we can, we can do. So is this to bring international like IFSC events to the UK? Yeah, absolutely. Not just that, also looking broadening horizons to ice climbing, I don't think we'd quite make ski mountaineering. We don't get a lot of snow, but you never know. <laughs> all right. So you're involved in all of it from just like regular competition climbing to ice climbing and I guess anything in between. Yeah. So I I have the opportunity to manage the British paraclimbing team and then oversee registrations for ice climbing and skimo and then um, opportunity to work with some of the ice climbers up in Scotland in hosting European style events for the UIA, which is the federation that runs all the international ice climbing. Yeah, I 
don't know much about ice climbing, um, especially since I think it is like a separate organization from the IFSC in general. So um, yeah, I just, I have no idea about ice climbing, but it's really cool that you have the knowledge of all of it. It basically means I don't get a break because the international season starts in April for IFSC sport climbing. And then the winter season starts when the international season for sport climbing finishes. Then we go into the winter season and then we start again <laughs> the following year. So there's, there's just no break from events. They're all the time. That must be, um, yeah, there's definitely no break there. Um, and so how did you get into this line of work anyway? I was a climbing wall manager working in Sheffield and hosting these events and the my predecessor he was he was leaving he actually joined the UIAA and runs the international ice climbing events and a couple of people on the ground so a couple of the coaches a couple of the route setters were like Zoe you'd be really good at going for this role so I thought all right I'll give it a go and I was successful and then here we are five years later still going right, so it started <laughs> just like do, like doing small events within your own like little climbing gym and then like yeah branching out from there yeah the the climbing gym they used to work at was a national designated a national performance center so each year we used to have to host uh the british league climbing champs and it just got stuck in and helped the organizer as much as i could i wanted to showcase the center i wanted to make the event really good and then the opportunity came up to apply for the role full time. So I took it with both hands. <laughs> mm -hmm. So are you now currently employed by IFSC or like, is it British Mountaineering? So I'm employed by the British Mountaineering Council. The IFSC stuff is voluntary. So I'm secretary general for mm -hmm. IFSC Europe. So I just help on the executive board at the European level in the Continental Council. And so I help with kind of meetings and plenary assemblies and event organization in terms of just supporting Alphonse, who does the calendar and that kind of thing. So that's more of a voluntary role. Just, uh, you know, my plate's not busy enough. Do you, I guess, get fulfillment from being able to, I guess, have a voice in that area and they like kind of take into account what um whatever like suggestions that you may have or yeah absolutely ways to improve. it's a really good way to help influence the future of the sport on a on an international level rather than just on a uk based level um and i just think it's important to have a seat at the table and, and help you know further the development of the sport especially especially around events in europe and the um the IFSC has just hit a hundred members and there's forty four member federations within Europe, so it's it's brilliant to interact with other federations and learn from them as well, like learn from what they're doing and, and try and improve what we offer in the UK. So it's it's a great opportunity. It's a bit of work, but hey. All all good things are works are you know, are worth something in the end, aren't they? <laughs> if you work hard enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so yeah, let's get into Team GB a bit, um, since that's what you have the most experience with. 
Um, so the GB climbing team, it seems pretty established. Um, in a previous podcast episode, um, I was talking to Maya, who you know, um, and she mentioned that in some countries, athletes are employed by the army, um, and that's kind of how they um, get paid and um, how they uh, have some security in the job that they're doing. Um, is this the case for GB? No, I think a lot of them are students or a lot of them are root setters or have part-time jobs or do try and full-time climb. Um, I think that's the best way you can maximize the training. We do have climbing teams within the armed forces and they do have their own competition series, which I've been invited to and go and assist on and help, but they don't tend to, not too much crossover between being in the armed forces and, and being on the team. It's quite different. So they're like actually part of the the army. Yeah, yeah, actually part of the army and the, oh, yeah, and the area. Oh gosh, okay. And the navy. How does the if you don't mind going into this? How does the GB climbing team itself actually make money? Um, is it like sponsors, donations? Do you ever like make money actually holding competitions? Oh, no, we don't make any money holding competitions. Okay. That's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'd love to know how people do make money hosting competitions. Most events I've gone to or worked on, the sole aim has been to break even. Uh, the team is in a position at the minute where we're going through a lot of change, so athletes are mainly self-funded. There is some um, some funding when you start to reach, creep into the Olympic side of things. So if you're really pushing for Paris or LA, there's a little bit of funding that can help support you on that journey. Um, but at the moment, we are kind of, it's a growing sport in the UK, but if you think of the UK, the first thing you think of is Premier League football. You don't really think of climbing. And so a lot of the money's in the Premier League. Um, but I think we'll get there eventually. It'd be good to, we're working on sponsorship, obviously. Everyone loves to have a bit of sponsorship and and work with sponsors to get the mutually beneficial relationship going. But that's quite challenging in these times, especially after after COVID and everyone's coming back to full calendars and full seasons and events are happening all over the world. And obviously you have to, you have to work out kind of your strategic games for the year and where you can get the most points from to get qualification routes into Paris, especially as Paris is next year. And then who knows what LA is going to look like yet? We don't know. It could be three single disciplines. And then the opportunities then explode for more climbers to come through, especially those that are leading Boulder. You're kind of hopeful that after more Olympics, um, after more Olympic years, there might be more money coming into the organizations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. More exposure and hopefully some medal success would be, would be great. But I think everyone wants to win medals, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys have some, some good prospects, um, especially with like Toby. So that'll be really exciting. Really, really exciting. And then looking forward to looking, yeah, head to LA 
you kind of look back a couple of years and see who's coming through at the youth side of things and how you can then really develop them to reach their potential and maybe even represent GB in LA. Which isn't that far away, even though everyone says, oh, it's 2028. Well, we're, we're at the back end of 2023, you know. It's not even that far away. And when you see how hard people have to work in order just to achieve the goal of getting to the Olympics and then let alone succeeding when they're at the Olympics is absolutely phenomenal. The time and effort and every, everything comes together and how everyone has to chip in. It's just crazy. Um, in terms of organizing events, what's one of like the most stressful moments that you've had there? Oh, so a funny, a funny story. When I first started five years ago, I didn't, I didn't really know what to expect when I walked into my first event. So I walked into this first event and Mark, who, who's been with me now for a good few years, and he he was volunteering his time way before I started. And so he had to teach me how to kind of do all the scoring and input the scores and, yeah, the general <laughs> day-to-day running of the event. So that was quite stressful. I think it. I try and go with... The kind of positive attitude that you just need to not worry about things that come your way and you've got to be really flexible and just enjoy it the the best thing is sometimes it can be a bit stressful in the run-up to the event but actually seeing the whole event come together and and be pulled off I think that was great but if I had to pinpoint a most stressful moment I think that would have been Edinburgh last year because we we stepped in last minute to host a IFSC World Cup, quite late notice. And by the time we'd got the go ahead that we could we could step in and host it, we had seven seven to eight weeks planning. So I was away at the time with the paraclimbing team in Innsbruck, and I was on this call when they were we were discussing whether or not we could go ahead and and run the event, and we decided to at the end. So we had seven to eight weeks of planning to pull this event together. The night of the event, so we'd just done the technical meeting on the Friday night. It's about to start Saturday morning, you know, T minus six hours or something. And the Queen dies. And we have no idea if the event's going to go ahead, if we can run it, if the government's going to cancel. So I'd say that's probably been one of my most stressful events (laughs) to date. Just had no clue. (laughs) <laughs> what was going on? Why was it only like a seven, eight week notice ahead of time? Oh, Wu Shang in, um, in China had pulled out pretty late, so they, they couldn't host and they were desperate to try and find another host. And I don't know, we, we like a challenge in the UK. And so we went for it. <laughs> so first of all, I think this was like your first World Cup event that you've worked on. This was my first World Cup event I'd worked on, yes. In in 2019, we'd hosted a European event at the same venue up in Scotland in the International Climate Arena. Amazing facility. So that was that was my first event, kind of European event, to get to grips with internationals. But this was our first, this was my first World Cup. So to combine it with eight weeks of planning and then have the Queen die was uh, pretty challenging. <laughs> yeah, so I guess after the the death, like what 
what happened in those few hours between Friday and Saturday night. We were desperately trying to find information on whether or not we could actually host the event. A lot of a lot of games, football games, etc., were being cancelled out of respect. And so you're in that middle ground where, okay, we've got a whole international event due to take place. We've got loads of people that have arrived in Edinburgh expecting to climb. We've sold tickets. We've got the the you know the arenas ready to go. We've got staff. We've everything's been organised. And we're just not sure if we're going to be able to run it or not. And if if the government says we can't run it, then we can't run it. So it was quite an interesting an interesting time. I think I got to bed around one in the morning, had a very restless night's sleep, and woke up to the news we could go ahead, but we couldn't have any social media coverage of the event out of respect. So we rushed off to Hobbycraft and we got some black ribbon, and we tried to make it as respectful as we could with silences throughout the day and yeah. But it was pretty stressful. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess what do you mean by no social media coverage of the event? Because I mean, obviously it was still streamed. Oh, so it was, um, we weren't allowed, we, out of respect, we didn't publish anything across our social media channels. So we didn't we didn't highlight that the event was taking place. We didn't we had loads of social media coverage planned to highlight the athletes, to highlight the um, the bagpiper that we had there that led out the procession of of the finalists. Um, but in the end, we yeah we chose out of respect not to not to highlight any of that across our social media channels over that weekend. I mean, we obviously highlighted bits after, but over the weekend we didn't do very much. And how did it turn out for you in the end? You feel like did it was it a successful event? Definitely, I I definitely learned a lot. Um, I had a blast. It was it was great. The seeing all the lighting and the athletes, everything coming together, the atmosphere. It was long, long hours, long old hours, but yeah, it was it was it gave me a real good taste of what we could do. Um, so I was just buzzing. Are you hoping to organize, like host another World Cup in Edinburgh eventually in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think we've got any firm plans for next year, but absolutely. I think it will be a great opportunity, especially in Edinburgh with the International Climbing Arena. It's a, it's a great venue, world class. Yeah. I guess how does it get chosen in the future like do you have to apply yeah so we'll be we would move towards a tender process so we would set out the requirements that we'd be looking for and then venues and councils because in england we have councils each region has a council uh we'd look to be working with the council and then they can apply to host the event the the face of the sport is changing massively um we we we're very commercial driven. We have over 400 commercially active centers within the UK, climbing centers, and they're not necessarily set up for spectating. So there's a big shift on, we could host events in city centers or we could host them in arenas. And if you look at um, the IFSC World Cup in Prague, I mean, that was in the middle of the city center. It was incredible. The footfall and the turnout of people watching that and it really highlighted 
the, then got the support on the map, I think, and it was is a great great for the IFSC. And so that's, that's kind of the future, really, moving it into city centres. And at the moment, all our events we host are in commercial, off commercially operated climbing centres, except for our British bouldering champs, which we set up in a park in the middle of Sheffield city centre. So I think, I think moving forward, it'll be, it will see a lot more of city centre events or events in arenas. When I went to the World Championships in Bern, that was in a ice hockey arena, and that was another oh. level. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, another another level that was um, had this amazing opportunity to go out and volunteer. So I headed out for three weeks to help uh, behind the scenes and help with help with everything. Helped with getting the venue ready. Helped with matting. Helped with call zones, helped with transition zones, cleaning, you, you name it, registration. I did it all that week and it was fantastic, but it was another level having that arena and seeing how packed it was, especially for combined finals or lead finals or board. The crowd was just incredible. So a whole another level. Yeah, we'll get into burn um, in a bit, uh, but going back to, I guess, just how these uh, arenas or climbing centers um, get set up. Uh, I think for a lot of us, um, we have never had the opportunity to go see a World Cup event in person. Um, I haven't, and I'm sure a lot of people haven't. Um, so for the, those of us who have never had the chance to go see one in person, can you sort of just describe like what the venue looks like and what um, what things you need in a venue to make the event possible yeah so for a boulder event um especially when we we run it in the park in sheffield with the city council sheffield city council and their business district that often supports it there's a scaffold structure and then the wall is built onto the structure and it's around four meters in height and then we need about four meters for matting and then we'll have some barriers so that the coaches can come in and we can also operate our judges. And then after that, it's free for spectators so they can take up all the space. Behind the scenes, you also have to consider athlete warm-up areas, drinks, toilet facilities, all the kind of other bits and bobs that you don't actually, you don't think goes on. Last year, I got the opportunity to go to the Gymnastics World Championship and they had in in Liverpool. And their front-facing arena, you think, oh, wow, that's incredible. But behind the scenes, they obviously, athletes needed somewhere to warm up. You know, they needed hotels and the accommodation can't be too far away because then athletes have to add, add on travel time. And so all the gymnasts were staying in the hotel literally across the road from the venue. But they had this whole underground operation, which was full of brand new equipment that the athletes could warm up on. And you just don't consider, oh, where are the athletes actually going to warm up? So at World Cups and and other events, they, they need space to to warm up, especially speed athletes. They have a lot of high energy routines. They need quite a bit of space. They do a lot of running fast, get their fast twitch muscles going. And then for, for ropes, obviously you want somewhere where you can actually get on a rope and link some longer moves together. Typically, you find that there's lots of bouldering space where you can warm up, but for a rope to climb it, 
you probably want to have some space where they can do some longer moves. LinkedIn and then Boulder. Well, most most venues have a little Boulder wall where you can start warming up. British bouldering champs, we are limited on space, so we encourage athletes to warm up where they can and then do their final prep at the venue just because we've got only got a small warm-up wall out the back. And then we pray that it doesn't rain because <laughs> we're, out, yeah, we're outside in the UK. <laughs> yeah, especially. So in these venues, like, um, are you building the... Is it like a portable climbing wall or are you trying to find spaces where a climbing wall has already existed? Because you said that you were building up like scaffolding and stuff. Yeah, so the the British Border Champs, we we use a team from the climbing works that come in and they build they build the wall. They, so they put the plywood onto the scaffold and actually shape the wall there and then based on the scaffold design. That's a, quite a unique competition for us. The rest of our events are held in commercial facilities where they already have the walls in situ and the matting in situ. And all we do is we go in and we provide root setters and the root setters are the ones that shape the competition and do the mastery and make the roots look cool or make the boulder problems look incredible. And and we have a hold supplier with um, serious climbing distribution and they provide us with holds for our events. And so all these little parts come together to make the event what it is. There's lots of moving parts and it's, you can't pinpoint one part is absolutely crucial because you need a venue, but without root setters and holds and then it doesn't work. So you kind of, it's all three points of the pyramid. You kind of need all three things to make the event come to life. And then the running of the whole thing, we rely heavily on volunteers. Um, from our technical officials to our B layers to guys on reception to people scanning tickets. Yeah, we rely a lot on volunteers to come down and and judge and B lay and hopefully they also have a good time. Try and give them a good time. <laughs> In terms of accommodating for rain, um, do you have a preference on indoor versus outdoor venues? It seems like most World Cups are outdoor venues, so I'm not really sure why, given the weather concerns. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I think outdoor venues just look really cool. So imagine you're walking through Sheffield City Centre and you come across Devonshire Green and there's this massive wall just in the middle of this green, in the middle of the city centre, you'll be like, whoa, what's that? Um, but in the UK, I don't know, I'd always go for an indoor venue because the weather's just so unpredictable. <laughs> I just don't think we could we could find a decent slot where it's not raining. <laughs> I mean, it's been lovely weather today, but it's October. You kind of want the season to be a bit shorter, but... Uh, yeah, I definitely think an indoor venue over an outdoor. But then again, I I absolutely love the British Bordering Championships is my favourite event in our national calendar just because it is outdoors and because we do build the wall specifically for that event. I absolutely love it. I just think it's a really unique and, yeah, awesome event. But if it rains, we don't get – the people don't come and watch and we've got to make sure, the, you know, the wall doesn't leak and – everywhere's kept dry and I think two years ago I think we had a flood because the weather was that bad out the back and 
the poor athletes couldn't warm up because they just there's just water everywhere and where we're trying to warm up and yeah so i definitely prefer a weatherproof venue i'll put it that way weatherproof venue so i guess part of the appeal of the outdoor venue is also just like drawing other people's eyes in who like aren't necessarily climbers but might see it just like out in the city and then yeah might look into it in the future because it looks interesting yeah absolutely i've there's one event on the circuit i'd love to go to and that would be chamonix and i've i've never managed to get there but chamonix done in and the backdrop is is the french alps and it's done outside on an amazing one and the backdrops the french alps i mean i got all the way to villars in in switzerland and their backdrop was also mountains so i do think it's pretty cool when you you've got mountains but i think we're we're more classed as an urban sport now, so I guess moving into the city centres kind of fits in with what we're being classed as, I guess. A bit more urban. Yeah, I guess I've like heard this a couple times that it's being classified as an urban sport. I don't really know what that means. I mean, like I guess I know what it means, but like does it really make a difference? Just like declaring it as an urban sport? I do think so. I think I think sport climbing will always have its history within mountaineering and climbing and, and being outdoors. Um, I think urban because it fits with skateboard and BMX and breakdancing. So I can kind of see that it's a it's younger sport, but I think it'll always have its links. I think people will eventually find their way outdoors and into the hills and into the mountains and onto the crags if they can, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. And does, do like national federations get, uh, a lot of guidance or like any guidance from the IFSC in terms of organizing or, um, do they just kind of let you go wild with it? Oh, there's an event handbook and there are specifications for the size of the wall, depending on which event you run. And then the IFSC will come in and they will give support with route setting and uh, technical officials and results service. So they do actually, and obviously event branding. So it is, um, is a good collaboration to work with them and showcase showcase the best of the, your country. That's essentially what you're doing. It's your shop window, isn't it? Look how, look how good Manchester is or Edinburgh is or the UK as a whole. That's essentially what you're doing. It's a great honor when you when you can you can apply and you can be selected. I definitely think it's a great honor. Okay, that's good. That's good to hear. But you don't um, make any money from it. It's like a very expensive procedure to go through. Very expensive procedure. But like worth it. Oh, do you know what? It's, uh, this is going to sound really nerdy, but when. After the World Champ, I know we're going to come on to the World Championships, but after I went to World Championships in Bern, I was so pumped up. I was just ready, like, what's the next event? Where are we going to next? I was just ready to continue and, and run another event. I just think there's something exciting and just brilliant about running events. When's the next one going to happen? And where's it going to be? And how can you make it better than the one you did last month or the one you did last year? And how many how many more children can you get to come down to the event and you know, love fall in love with climbing and and fall in love with competing and or even just have a good time. Just come down and have a good time and not worry about whether they come first or whether they come last. They just come and have a great time. So I think I think events are 
a really good way to highlight everything. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, but yeah, we can go into your burn experience. So I mean, that's a massive <laughs> event to uh, to pull off. Um, what? Just like walk me through what it was like organizing for that. It started with a few conversations back and forth with Urs on the on the Swiss Alpine Club. He's kind of slightly higher than me in, in the organization in the organization, but I know him through the European board. And he put me in touch with Sandro and Julia and they were the main organizers. And it it was just fantastic to just, just get the opportunity to be involved. Um not sure what I was expecting. You know when you go to events and you think, Oh, just going to volunteer my time. Not sure what I was expecting. So the first day, arrived in Switzerland, got picked up, went and picked up the Myringen Boulder Wall and brought it back to Bern and helped unload it and have a look at the venue. And yeah, it was already quite underway in terms of route setting was happening and the holds were there and the athlete lounge needed to be set up and various sign signage needed to go everywhere and they had this cool athlete village village of experience and that was coming in and yeah it was just crazy it was i didn't start i did 20 days straight I didn't stop it was just brilliant i know that sounds like a lot but <laughs> all them it does sound like a lot all their volunteers they had a really cool um volunteer manager called christian who worked at the local climbing center o-block i think he runs it if he's listening he'll probably be upset that i've probably got his title wrong he was so funny, but he organized the volunteers and they had such a group, great group of volunteers. There wasn't someone I met that they're just brilliant. Uh, Rito gave us some honey from his local bees. And then Lauren, um, Lauren's over in Ireland. So actually she's not, she's not that far from me. So we've been meeting up and she came to the British League Champs back in September. So it was great to see her again. And Roman, you know, you keep in touch with all these people that you meet and you You've just been brought together on this one event and just pulled off such a such a brilliant brilliant level of organization and level of event and it was yeah, it was just fantastic to be part of the team. Absolutely fantastic to see what really goes on and what you really need to pull off a world championship. Um they had over I think I read in the local newspaper it was like sixty thousand people came across the three week period, two week period of the of the event and obviously they handed out the first tickets to to Paris so that was even even more fantastic but yeah I kind of wished the IFSC had like packed me up in their trunk and taken me to the next event you know <laughs> it's been such a good time what's next what, what, what event have we got coming up next you mentioned that this was that it took place in an ice hockey arena yeah so the post finance arena in Bern is actually normally used in winter for, as an ice hockey stadium. So they removed all the ice and the team were actually still training at the venue. So sometimes we'd have qualification going on for lead and then all these hockey players would walk through the same <laughs> area behind the scenes and they would go into this um, this secondary ice rink to do all their training. So it was pretty cool, but it's a huge arena, absolutely huge, and just had seating and then standing um, and was accessible for the guys that needed wheelchair access. But yeah, it was just, it was crazy. The The first week, I don't know how many times I got lost. 
or locked out. <laughs> you couldn't find my way back in. <laughs> and so, like, how long does it take to just build up these walls in these places that don't have, like, necessarily the structure for it? I think they said it had been about uh, a couple of weeks before because they'd got this two arenas on the same site. So they had the curling hall, which is where the curling team practiced. They had that for the border qualifications. So that's that came in, that was finished off the week I was there because we'd moved the Myringham wall and that got put in as the qualification wall and the fencing and the, the matting. So all that went in the last week before the competition started. So I was I was mainly involved in that area, but I think a week and a half before that, they'd done the build in the main arena. So they'd done the speed wall, the lead wall, and the boulder wall there. And the route setting had started for the para first. And then, again, when I arrived, they were doing the bouldering and the lead for their individuals. And then the recesses just, they work so hard. And then they have to reset for the combined finals and the combined qualifications. So a lot of route setting happened. Um, but they were they were really good, really positive, friendly guys to work with. So you had a bunch of volunteers working under you. Um, what was it like keeping all of them organized for the for the event? I think the biggest thing I learned was you need to allow um, people time to watch. So smaller smaller shift patterns and allow people time to watch the event because you're just enthralled with what the crowd did. When the crowd go wild at that arena, it was so loud. You, you you knew when someone was at the top or someone was close to the top or someone had done something amazing because the crowd just make the hairs on the back of your arms stand up. It was incredible. So I think it was allowing, making sure that everyone knows we're all, we're all human at the end of the day and we're really interested in what's going on. So allowing allowing some time so they can go and oh hey, this is the last guy now. You can you know why don't you go out and watch and I'll I'll stay back and cover the last few guys so I think that's something I learned massively was yeah we all want to watch <laughs> as well as volunteer but we all want to watch yeah so you have to sacrifice yourself a bit. yeah I don't mind I'm more of a behind the scenes than I am in front of the camera <laughs> yeah no that definitely makes sense I've like volunteered in the past and when you're I was just doing like um like the isolation area and when you hear the crowd go wild but you can't see what's going on it's just it's like a very stressful experience especially when because obviously some of the gb climbers were there like toby was there and molly and especially when you want to just be supportive and try and cheer them on but equally you can't because you've got to be serious and professional and you know make sure everyone's having a good time in the back and you and you're not interfering with the athletes and making sure that they can stay in the zone and you're just there to be invisible but guide them in the right way when they need to go out. <laughs> yeah, what was and what was one of the most um, difficult parts of burn for you? I would have to say, although we, we did laugh about it a lot afterwards, but there was one slip up when uh, during one of the rounds, I can't, I can't remember what round it was, Adam Andre, so you have to control the gate Okay, so the athletes come out and they have a clock and the clock went different colours. So the clock went red and then it went white and they, the white was the 15 second transition. That, so they had to wait for 15 seconds before they could go out to start their rotation. 
And so the red clock was counting down and there was beeps. And Adam just blew past me and went straight out and I had someone in my ear shouting, why is Adam out on the field of play? He shouldn't have been out yet. And I couldn't stop him. So I think that was quite a stressful moment because he'd just gone. And I was like, oh no, you're not supposed to be out there. And I think it was um, uh, Julian Clements and uh, uh, Alex Megos. Then they were just having a bit of fun teasing me and pretending that they were going to go earlier for the next couple of rounds. So that was <laughs> it's quite stressful to try and make sure the athletes stay there and go out at the right time. Um, but yeah, entertaining. We had a good chuckle afterwards. <laughs> Did he just not know? Please excuse this brief intermission, but I would just like to take some time and remind you that if you are enjoying this podcast, please follow and rate it on your preferred listening platform. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe and hit the like button. Anything helps to push this podcast out to more people and get even more amazing guests on. Back to the show. I think when they get, um, I think when they get in the zone, they just don't. Because the transition, the 15 second transition is new to this year. So I think when they just get in the zone, mm. that's it. And they're used to the countdown and then go. And so. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome time. Um, let me think. Was there anything else that you wanted to um, discuss in terms of burn? Well, I don't think so. I mean, the event, it, the event itself was was. Fantastic because the para climbing was bang in the middle. So I, I nipped out of the organizational role for a couple of days so I could manage the GB para climbing team and help all the athletes with their campaigns and and their schedules to try and get them into the finals. And it was great having such an inclusive event where it wasn't, okay, here's the able-bodied climbing and then there's two days and the um, para climbing starts. The para climbing was bang smack in the middle and some of the GB team came down and supported and it was a really great atmosphere and it was the biggest power climbing event I think they've run so far. I had around 180 to 200 athletes and 25 countries competing. So it was fantastic. A real, real showcase for power climbing sport. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah, let's get right into the paraclimbing um, stuff. That's something I'm not as familiar with. Um, so what are some of the differences between organizing for, I guess, like traditional able-bodied World Cup climbing and organizing for paraclimbing? The main difference would be the number of categories. So we have 10, 10 sport classes, nine, nine or 10 sport classes currently. And that's, and that's men and women. So at the end of burn, I think there were 17 podiums we had to get through for power. So it's it's pretty cool. Each the categories cover different um, different ranges and different different um dif- different disabilities. So you have the amputee guys, you have the visually impaired guys, and then you have the range and power. So kind of the neurological side of things. And within each of them, there's different um, numbers that donate, whether or not it's the most impaired or the least impaired. So for example, in the range in power, so the neurological side, you have RP1, and that would be your guys with kind of the more heavily impaired, so they might only have like a bit of power in their legs or range of motion is limited. And then you have RP2, 
which is a step up, and then RP3, which is the least kind of disabled in that in that group. So people maybe with multiple sclerosis might be in RP3, and you're looking in your RP1, guys that have cerebral palsy, that kind of thing. Then your amputee categories, you have your lower and your upper. So you've got your lower leg and your upper, so your AL1, which is mainly seated. Those guys are, are incredible. So they campus everything on their roots because they can't use their legs. It's just it's just mind-blowing. It's incredible to watch. And then you have your lower leg amputees. They might wear a prosthetic or they might choose not to. And then in the arm, you have your below the kind of elbow joint and below. And they had a new class this year, which was AU3. And that's if you've got problems with your hands. So if you're missing fingers, that affects your grip or loss of sensation or anything to do with that, then they've got, they've kind of restructured the classes there. And then finally, the visually impaired, they follow the same as the RP guys. So you've got visually impaired, so you've got B1, B2, B3. So B1 being you're fully can't see anything and B3 being you have some vision, but not, not, not the same as me or you, for example. That's a lot of categories. Um, I guess, do you know how those got um, determined? And is it kind of weird trying to fit people into these categories, like determining at what level of, I guess, disability they have? Oh, absolutely. So each year, you have to undergo classification. And so you will complete a medical form and you send it off to the International Federation before you're due to compete. And then two days before the event, you'll get assigned a classification slot. Now, you can be classified for a, a fixed review date, so a number of years, or you can be classified for just that year and they want to see you the following year, or you can be classified as not eligible. And I think it's one of the most stressful things that anyone should have to go through because essentially you're being judged on whether or not you're disabled enough to represent your country. And and don't get me wrong, I understand that there needs to be some set of rules and some set of, okay, criteria to make the competition fair so that you're, you're broadly competing with in the category with people that have a similar or the same ailments as yourself. So I understand that, but the process of classification is always stressful. I've never found it not stressful and I'm not even the one being classified I'm just there to support the team and then if you have a fixed review date that's like the best outcome so it'll be a number of years so you might be classified this year and your fixed review date will be 25 or 26 so then you don't need to submit your medical documentation each year you'll just need to have it submitted and ready for 2026 when you go for your review and it's that similar across all para sports, um, but I think we are one of the sports with the highest number of classes, sport classes currently. Um, a lot of other sports have fewer classes, so you can, you can imagine they might have a broader range of ailments to fit into one class. Um, but yeah, we have the highest number, I think, at the moment. Yeah, that is a lot. Um, do you think that uh, I mean, there is like the 
Paralympics as well. Is that something, is climbing something that'll show up in the Olympics in the future for paraclimbing? We find out in November, at the end of November. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, we find out, so the decision will be made about whether paraclimbing will be included in LA in 2028, which is why I was saying that Bern was such a success because 25 countries had para athletes represented at that event, which is which is phenomenal, and it shows that the sport is growing, and that there is an appetite for people to come and watch as well. Um, but yeah, the IFC have got a strong desire to be included in the Paralympics, and so we're just waiting to hear now. So it's is exciting. It could it could change a lot for a lot of athletes, as I was saying at the start. So some of these athletes could then have the opportunity to be funded because they could be in with medal potential for, for LA Games, which is does seem like eight, nine years away, but that's like, it's going to go by pretty quickly. If you imagine you've got to try and keep yourself healthy and work really hard to be the best you can be for this this one in, pinnacle sporting event where you could be an Olympian. I just, I just think for paraclimbers to have that opportunity would just just be incredible but we have to wait and see end of november yeah that would be really exciting do you know so like what kind of um do you know what kind of categories would be available for paraclimb or for yeah the paralympics for paraclimbing if that does come through no i i don't have that information at the moment i just know that the decision is going to be made and then i guess we'll find out but i'm hoping I'm hoping that they'll they'll cover. I don't know. Either way, someone's going to lose out. Do you know what I mean? Because I we can't just head to the Paralympics as a a first first opportunity for the sport and have all the classes be accepted, which would would be amazing, obviously. <clears throat> so I think, yeah, I don't know. I'd love to know, but I'd, I'll just have to wait. <laughs> I mean, even for. Like the regular Olympics, um, they only gave us one medal for all of speed and Boulder and lead. So, yeah, I can't really imagine. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they'll they'll give us many medals for the Paralympics either. But hopefully, one day. I think it will be it'll be great if it does get into LA though, because. America, USA, you have a strong, a really strong paraclimbing team. So I think, yeah, the rest of us have to catch up. <laughs> yeah, it'll be exciting to see. Um, do you know how, like, is there a way we'll hear about it in November? I guess, like, the IFSC will make a statement about it or something like that. Yeah, I, I hope that that'll be an official announcement. Um, we've been waiting for the decision since February, so... No one else has told me it'll be delayed any later than November, so I've got my fingers crossed that it will be at the end of November. <laughs> yeah, okay. I hope to hear about it, and I hope it goes through. Yeah, me too. Me too. It'll be, it'll be incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. And so in terms of organization, um, what are some of the accommodations that you have to keep in mind, um, either for like the venue or just the climbing in general? Um that you think most people probably don't have to think about when um, organizing for paraclimbers? 
the the layout of the venue is really important and how accessible it is. So if you imagine there'll be some people with mobility issues, but there will be people in full wheelchairs. So the layout of the venue and a lot of climbing walls, if they've got accessible toilets on the ground floor, it might be an accessible venue, but then you've got to go up the stairs to use this facility. So that's, that's a consideration. And then the IFSC actually produces really great document where they give you kind of guidelines around route setting because different categories have different strengths and weaknesses. So for, for some categories, you need to put on more footholds because they can't, they're not going to, with the range and power motion, they're not going to be able to lift their feet as high. With some, some sport classes like the seated guys, you don't really want to put them on a vertical wall if they're campusing because they're not going to be able, they need to be able to like, their body will be hanging. So they need to have some space. And then the amputee guys, you need to think about, they can't really use small crimpy holds, especially if they've got a, a forearm missing or, or a hand missing. So there, there's a really great document that gives you some guidance on the root setting. And the root setting actually is generally, I think it's still learned. I think everyone's still learning about where the, you know, where the glass ceiling is. I don't, I don't think we've tapped what the athletes are actually able to do yet because we're still learning at each event and each event the route setting is getting better and more varied and the holds are incredible and the athletes doing incredible things and I, I just don't think we've tapped into to where it can go just just yet. I think there's massive amounts of potential for route setting but yeah, there's a great, great support from the IFSC and they give you some real good guidance on what you can, you know, what the sport classes look like and what you can set and what's best to avoid. Yeah, I would love to get like a a root center on for answering some questions about that in the future. Um, but is there anyone um, like is there any paraclimber on an IFSC board or like the um, the athletes commission that helps speak to these things? So I've been pushing for that to happen. It's not we're not quite there yet. Um, there is a paraclimbing commission that's very active. Um, with within IFSC that has para athletes represented on there, so I think that's great, and they do have input and they do make suggestions. And after each World Cup or World Championships, there's a meeting with the coaches and the route setters, and we we try and come together and discuss and just try and work with other federations and run training camps and attend each other's nationals. So. I think we have Matty from Slovenia came over to the British champs like back in September, which is great. Um, we're hoping to head out to to Spain to attend their nationals and we're hoping to to go to some of the Swiss nationals. So I think there's a lot of cross-collaboration within the para and we just, we just need a few more events, I think, which is great. Awesome. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's everything I want to go over in terms of paraclimbing. Um, there was one last thing that I think you mentioned you had a lot of say on, um, which I thought was interesting, and that is the anti-doping laws. Um, and that's something I'm not familiar with at all. I haven't looked into like rule books or anything about it. Um, do you want to give like a brief overview of that? 
Oh yeah, I'm see. I I find another weird thing about me. I find anti-doping absolutely fascinating. So I think it was back in uh, 1908 that was the first recorded doping use at an Olympic Games, um, and then people knew about it, but they they we didn't have any testing, and then. Uh, WADA was formed in around 1999 and UK anti-doping came in after that. And that's when, you know, we started doing the prohibited list and started looking at the ways people can and do cheat. And there's been some cracking stories recently. Like the whole Lance on Armstrong and uh, and Russia, obviously. But I just find the whole, the whole side of that absolutely incredible it's really interesting and fascinating uh, I've, I've attended a few doping controls in my time with uh with the power climbing team <laughs> so so uh we basically you can comply as a sport you can decide to sign up to the code uh, interestingly in america nfl don't sign up to the code that's quite interesting and also um crossfit i don't think Sign up for CrossFit Games. They don't think he's covered by WADA. So I, fi- I find all these little things fascinating. Uh, we sign up to WADA and then our national doping authority is uh, UK Anti-Doping in the UK. And I... So I'm the anti-doping officer and so I'm responsible for all the training of the athletes and and staff and coaches and athlete support personnel. And it's just incredible. It's just, yeah, it's just brilliant. It's really interesting. So there's lots of ways you can check your medications and your supplements. And a lot of climbing gyms have all these protein shakes with added protein in. And actually, 98% of inadvertent doping comes from supplement use. So we obviously promote a food-first approach, but anything with that's got protein added into it or protein shake or, you know, a a cliff bar, anything that's got stuff added into it is actually a supplement. And that presents a real anti-doping risk, especially if you are an elite athlete. And you you can be tested inside and outside of competition. And the prohibited list is this, is this fascinating document where it lists all the substances that are prohibited but not just that, all the methods of how you can get them into your system as well that are prohibited. And it's just a real, it's just a real, real interesting, an interesting topic. And I just love going in and educating people around what they can and can't do and how to keep themselves safe, really, as an elite athlete. Um, and yeah, just another weird thing about me, I guess. <laughs> so what kind of, what kind of testing do you guys do and like how often is it? So we have a testing pool. So if you're on the national testing pool, you would need to submit your whereabouts. And your whereabouts is this uh, big diary where basically you need to specify an hour of each day of where you're going to be. Now, I don't know about you, but I would find that really difficult because <laughs> my plans are always changing. But as an elite athlete, that's what it's kind of what you sign up for in order to keep your sport clean. Um, so you submit an hour each day, and then they basically can come and test you at any time, in and out of competition. 
when we hosted the Edinburgh World Cup, we provided testing at the event. It's mandatory for any IFSC event. You need to provide testing. And with the para side of things, so I've accompanied a couple of athletes to testing control and gone through the testing process. And it's not it's not as scary as you think, but it's, yeah, it's just fascinating. And you have to choose your vessel and they they test one sample right there. Well, not right there. It goes off to the laboratory to be tested. But then your second sample is kept in storage for 10 years. It's frozen and kept for 10 years. Because methods of getting illegal substances into your body is always evolving and anti-doping is always trying to catch up with with how this substance has got in under the skin or got in through this system or got in through that system and then can be then linked to uh, an improved performance or enhance, you know, enhance the sport essentially. So I just, I just find it fascinating and I, I quite, I guess I feel quite privileged in order to try and help protect the sport and keep it, keep it clean and keep, keep all the athletes safe and on the right side. Wow. 10 years is a long time. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? 10 years. I do, I often go, I often go to the thoughts of, you know what, what happens if there was no doping and everyone could just get jacked up on steroids and how, how far could you push human limits? But um, it's probably not one to do. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that could get weird really fast. Do we, are th- like, I don't know the history of doping within climbing. Are there cases where that has happened before? No, very few, to be honest. I think um, the 2021 code introduced substances of abuse, and that's more around habitual drug use, so your cannabis, your steroids, your um, ecstasy, that kind of thing, and cocaine. And so they introduced this in the code in 2021, and it's more of a program to help athletes because sometimes I get real event blues, so, you know, when you've run a really big event or you've looked forward to a holiday or, or you know, something amazing's happened in your life and you've just had a great time and then you come back and hit reality and you just, you're just really down in the dumps. And I think, I don't know, because obviously I'm not an athlete, but I do, I have had post-event blues quite a few events where the event's gone brilliant and you're just so thrilled and people have turned up and, had a good time and the the problems have been amazing the root set has done a great job everything's come together to make this perfect moment in time and then the next minute that's it it's over and so I, I imagine it's probably similar for for olympic athletes or any you know they must have real real depressive bouts because what do you do now you've you've worked four years to achieve one goal you've achieved it Where'd you go? So I, they introduced this um, substance of abuse that gets you like a three month ban if you can prove that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't related to performance and um, it wasn't related to performance and that you could, um, you can get it reduced to one month if you go on a drug rehabilitation program. So it's quite, it's quite interesting how the prohibited list is always evolving to what's going on in society. But yeah, the event blues is pretty, it's pretty hard when you, you know, it hits you. 
sometimes I don't I don't get it every event, but ones I'm really proud of, it can take, you know, a week to kind of get back to normal and feel a bit normal, like feel a bit more like myself. Yeah. So are you saying that there's like no usage allowed for any substances like that? So there's two there's two main phrases we use in competition and out of competition. So some substances will be banned at all times in and out of competition. Some will only be banned in competition. And so some some you'll be able to use out of competition, but you still need to be careful and then you can get, uh, like, m- the main thing is around cold and flu medicine. So if you're really ill and you're taking decongestants, for example, you do really need to check what ingredients are on are in, are in your decongestants because some of them can have banned substances in because they open up the airways to help you breathe because that's the point of a decongestion if you're really ill and you need you need to breathe and you, you've got a blocked nose and you need some support then in, in that sense. So... There's a great uh, a great website called Global Dro, and you can check medications from different countries. It doesn't cover all the countries in the world, but it does help for you to minimise your risk of doping. And a lot of the time, it's having conversations with your doctors as well. Interestingly, though, the longevity of Parasport has thrown up an interesting conversation I've been having with UK anti-doping recently around um, go uh, athletes going through the menopause. And, and hormone replacement therapy and where that sits with anti-doping and whether or not, you know, there are therapeutic use exemptions for those that, that need specific hormone replacement therapy to help them through the menopause because there's a great difference between able-bodied and power climbers and a lot of power climbers are slightly older or have more longevity in their career. I don't know whether that's just because they only do lead routes or if or if there's I haven't figured it out I think probably be a good piece of research to do but you do find that often the climbers are older or can sustain their climbing careers for longer on the power side of things and then yeah it's thrown up around okay going through the menopause what what happens now with regards to anti-doping it's a really interesting conversation to have yeah and some and something people might not have considered before I have never thought about that before. Um, I had no idea there were athletes in that age range that would be going through menopause. So that's uh, that's a that's news to me for sure. It's still really impressive that they can uh, they can they can climb at, the, at that level at the international level. You know. Yeah, um, I don't even I don't even know where to go with that. Like I haven't even thought about menopause in my life so I I don't even know like I didn't even like you take drugs for that period of your life I don't know yeah you can do some people don't need them but some people do need assistance with um, hormone replacement so the the process you go through isn't as bad I guess but no I'm not well versed in that I mean we've we've got that to look forward to right (laughs) uh yeah Oh, I do hope it's a long time from now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but it was just highlighting the, you know, the breadth of of what you deal with as an anti-doping officer and how you can be helping people who just have ADHD and, and need therapeutic use exemption or those with asthma or hay fever and, and how they can, you know, manage their medication or find alternatives or get the get the appropriate 
exemption so they continue using that and then and then yeah you've got this one to deal with hormone replacement therapy what do you what do you do there Jeez, yeah have you seen a lot of like accidental cases where like they ended up using something that they didn't realize would show up and be like a banned substance not in climbing but i think that's probably because we're still relatively young oh, i'm not going to say new because climbing's been around for ages and, and climbing competitions have been around for ages i mean the ifsc was created back in 2004 so it's not it's not like it's new but climbing as a sport is young on its olympic journey compared to other sports so i don't think i don't think we've had very many cases if at all and compared to other sports like weightlifting and athletics and bobsleigh and you know, all the high press sports you hear in the news around 12 years later, they finally got awarded the gold medal because the doping was finally proven and X, Y, Z. And I, I just don't know if if climbers just come from that pure mountaineering sport and they just don't cheat. <laughs> As a casual climber, I can't even imagine what kind of uh, drugs people would take in order to cheat. I mean, I think on the on the power side of things, if you had so some conditions like multiple sclerosis, um, you can take cannabinoids because they do help alleviate some symptoms. So whether or not you could say that was performance enhancing is slightly different because if your if your tremors are gone or your you know you it could you could say it's performance enhancing in that way for that athlete because it's helping manage their condition. So that that's an interesting kind of take on things, but. I don't think we've had many cases at all. So is that would that be like banned in that case or is that okay as of the rules right now? It would be banned at the moment. Yeah. They'd have to find an alternative, which can be tricky depending on how severe your your condition is. It can be tricky. All right. So I think those were the questions I had, but there were a few other questions for, from the Discord group. Um, so we'll get into those now. It's more of like a grab bag of questions now um, oh, in terms of, yeah, all of all of your experience, any of your experience. Okay. Um, so the first one, um, how does the IFSC decide on where the competitions take place um, and what's in it for the national federations to hold these competitions? So applications, so IFSC run a, a system on applications you need to apply to host a world cup or world championships and the world championships is voted on at the general assembly so the general assembly is where all the member federations come together and discuss many things to do with climbing it's normally it's great to see everyone and reconnect with other federations and the host venue or host federation does a presentation and go we want to host the world championships or youth world championships for these reasons. And here's why you should come and visit us. And this is what we're going to do for the event, et cetera, et cetera. But the world cups are done on an application basis. And they, if you look at the, the cadence of the calendar, you can see they try and group like an Asia leg, a European leg, and then a Pan American leg, mainly because uh, we have a real drive to try and run sustainable competitions. I appreciate they're not going to be, that's sustainable because people always have to travel. But there are things that can be done to make the event sustainable in a way. And then in terms of the National Federation, oh, 
just the opportunity to to showcase you know your events it's a it's a big stage hosting a world cup it's such a privilege and and you have such an opportunity just to host um show off your host city on your country you also get additional quota places so if you are the host venue you get you can have additional places for additional athletes and that's a big opportunity if you're trying to build um, depth in your field depth in your team and you can give them this experience on home turf where they're not having to spend loads of money to travel to go overseas to compete where they get an opportunity to go you know at the Edinburgh World Cup last year we had additional places and the athletes you know they could come and climb and enter the competition and it's that a home wall that they use or a wall that they can access regularly. So they have a bit of an advantage and I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons. But as well as having just having the privilege of having everyone come to your country, I think it's a massive draw for national federations to host, definitely. Huh. Yeah, I had never thought about just how much easier it must be for the athletes to just like be staying in like a hometown area. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As a national federation, you can um, put in to have a, an apprentice route setter. So some of your national route setters can get the opportunity to set. So again, you're then just increasing the exposure to your whole system. So if your national setters are setting at international level events, then they can bring that back into your national events. And then you can improve your national events, which improves your athlete experience, which is improving, closing the gap of performance between a national event and an international event and therefore your athletes just get more exposure to the holes, to the moves, to the setting standard and styles and that can only benefit them in the long run. So there's wider and, and plus workforce development. So your national judges will get exposure to an international level competition and judging and that experience. Again, it all comes back into the system. So it all helps you improve your national events. A lot of opportunities and experience it sounds like which yeah makes sense i hadn't thought about that um and you had also mentioned um like environmental sustainability in, in terms of um keeping um the competitions within the same continent for a little while um we actually had another question that was related to that um, how does the IFSC see the future of international comps in terms of environmental sustainability um, and whether they're trying to address that issue, um, for example, through like the building of new venues, a source of equipment, reusing items, waste? I think, I think everyone's trying to address it in their own way. IFSC Europe have the Sustainability Award, so each event organizer has to complete a questionnaire on basically what they've done to try and make the event sustainable as possible. And there's three tiers, uh, bronze, silver, and gold. The the tiers are quite achievable, although I don't think we've awarded a gold yet at European level, but we've definitely got bronze and silver. And it just, it just puts it in the forefront because you think, okay, what can we do? We host competitions across the world, so everyone's going to travel to those events. So we need to think how we can get there in a more sustainable way. But actually, you often find that 
yeah, okay, you think a train might be cheaper or might be greener, but in the UK especially, we use diesel trains a lot of the time. So actually, that's not that environmentally friendly compared to a plane where a lot of airlines now you can buy into this greener tariff so you offset some of your carbon footprint. Um, as a federation, we have our climate project. So we're replanting um, sphagnum moss. Probably only <laughs> useful in the UK with our peat bogs. There's, a, there's this great plant called sphagnum and basically it pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and it becomes a carbon sink. And a lot of the peak district where I live has these um, has these peat bogs that are drying out and we've got a regeneration project underway to kind of help prevent water runoff and keep the bogs and help replant sphagnum, which will hopefully draw carbon out of the atmosphere. So those, those kind of projects that people could get involved with. Um, but it is high on the agenda for the IFSC and, and definitely in IFSC Europe with the Sustainability Award for event organizers, which is good success. Um, we're hoping to adopt some of it at our national events next year. Um, it just seems that government federations and that kind of thing, they're all pushing to have some considerations for the environment moving forward. So yeah, we all have our part to play. There's a, you know, do you know about Halls and Wars? So there's Halls and Wars in uh, Germany this year. And we have our Sustainability Commission of IFSC Europe are doing a presentation around this exact topic. And there's a really interesting talk going on around how you can reuse and re-texture holds so that you can ex extend the life of the holds that we're currently using. So if anyone's in Germany, they should check out Halls and Wars at the end of November. It's got some good talks going on around sustainability for climate walls and climate owners. Yeah, I'll link uh I'll link it down in the description. I'll get that from you after. Um Yeah, I guess like do you know anything about how how to like retexture holds or like what is what is like the life uh the lifespan of a hold? Um our head root setter Max, he has a company called Contact Holds and they've started this um basically in the UK where they will retexture old holds to help improve the use of them and help to keep them being used rather than just being thrown away because the texture's gone. So there are some really, there are some really interesting projects and there are some climbing walls I think in Germany that are carbon neutral or moving towards that way. So I, I is at the forefront of the industry. I do think there are people that are trying things and doing things to make the whole sport more sustainable. But yeah, we we all have our part to play in. I think when you run events, it's quite challenging because everyone has to get there somehow. Those things are sort of unavoidable and I'm sure not climbing specific, but yeah, we can all try to do our part. Um, all right. So another question, a bit lighter of a question, maybe favorite and least favorite competition to work on. Yeah, that's a really, that's a, that's a really hard question. I know it shouldn't be a hard question, but it's a really hard question. I would say my favorite competition to work on, if I was from a volunteer point of view, was obviously the World Championships in Bern. But if I was looking at it from my organizer point of view, then it has to be the Edinburgh World Cup because I think to date that was the, 
that's been the pinnacle of my career so far. Especially as, you know, eight weeks. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone doing it in eight weeks. Like the, like the World Championships in Bern have been in the planning process of two years compared to... I know the World Championships isn't the same as a World Cup. <coughs> but they were... They've been planning that event for two years in the run-up to doing it. So, yeah, to do a World Cup in, in eight weeks, I think it's pretty cool, but I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. And least favourite... Oh. See, I'm trying to think of all the events I've been to, even as a even as a coach, I can't think of one that was my least favourite. Maybe you've blocked it out. I, I probably have. I... I think maybe maybe my least favorite has probably been when something's gone really wrong and you can't control it. So the flooding at the the BBCs we had that one year, um, that's probably been one of my least favorite because the crowd don't come and watch and everyone's getting wet and the athletes are getting wet and it's miserable. I think and the roof's leaking and the mats wet and you're like, oh, I think that's probably been one of my my least favorite just because i can't control the weather as much as i'd like to i can't did the um bouldering championship still just go on like fully as planned even with the flooding oh yes we're british we don't stop (laughs) we just carry on no i was just i was just wondering because like for like the world cup in korea they canceled finals because of the rain so i wasn't sure if um yeah well, if it could go on we have we have a slight roof covering the wall so the athletes are dry no one else is dry but the athletes are dry at least so i think a slight difference um but it was interesting that it didn't carry on but again as an event organizer if you only have a set number of days it's really challenging to build flex into the system you know or is the weather going to be bad? Or I don't know. Do we need to build in an extra day? And then you can't really give out a provisional timetable with, okay, if the weather's bad, then we'll have this extra day because people have to book accommodation and travel and X, Y, Z. But yeah, we do have a bit of a roof on it. Just if it's really heavy, there's no hope. <laughs> All right. Um, and I think last question, um, it's a pretty quick factual one so that should be pretty simple um what are the techno technical requirements for walls to host different types or levels of competitions um including those which are beyond the wall itself so i guess like venue related as well yeah so um the i guess figures so standard boulder world cup will be on a 30 to 35 meter wall in in length and then you need a four four meters in height and then two and a half meters out for the matting from the highest point so that they there's enough space for people to land so that's it's always quite a challenge i think and the and then height wise lead and speed are kind of similar because you need at least 15 meters but you can't forget the dyno at the end of the speed wall the last the last little bit but 15 meters can be a challenge when you're trying to trying to set and the speed will slightly overhanging and then the lead will can be anything from like five degrees all the way down to 40 degrees overhang 
So it'd be really interesting to see where how the walls develop in the future and where they go. Like obviously the Olympic boulder wall is smaller. That's only around 20 meters in length. Because it only fits four, four, three, three problems on, three, four problems on. It's a lot smaller than a World Cup wall. And then the lead wall again is is shorter in in width because you've only got to fit one, two, three, four, like six lines on it. So the IFSC do an event handbook where they list all their essential criteria. And if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and you're outside, your wall needs to face in a certain direction or your venue needs to be orientated in a certain direction so you don't get sun glare. In terms of sound systems, you can't have speakers like facing the wall. They've got to be facing the crowd so that it doesn't interfere with the athletes so they can focus. And again, with spotlighting as well, you can't have the, the matting where the boulder wall is and the lights underneath they can't be too close and because of the climbers and being in their eyes and so there are quite a few i likened <laughs> i likened burn to uh you know if you went to a broadway show <laughs> when it got down to the the final bits of it you know the combined final or the boulder final where they're about to crown the world champion in bouldering i likened it a bit to a, a broadway show in all the requirements that were needed for production for the for the stream and the and the TV and the broadcast from commentary from lighting from the sound system for the crowd to be able to do highlight reels so you can see appeals if you're judging and and the federation's putting an appeal to the scoring to the timing system yeah it's quite complicated when you drill down into all the bits that come together to make this perfect moment in time where you where you see some athletic prowess from some of the top climbers in the world is pretty pretty incredible. I'm not sure if that answered the question, but essentially there are quite a few <laughs> a few behind the scenes technical stuff. And then don't forget the warm up space because the athletes need to get warm. And if they're not getting warm, then that doubles as the isolation space. So they're isolation. And and you got to think of the comfort because they could be in there for a good few hours in isolation, depending on the number of athletes. And you have to think of their comfort and the coach's comfort. And is there enough space for them all to be in there at the same time? Because that's also a consideration. And if you have any overlaps in your schedule, then does that mean there's going to be people overlapping in this in this area? And so, do you have enough space and? Is everything accessible if you've got power coming in? Are the, are the toilets nearby? Yeah, a lot goes a lot goes into making the events happen. Really, a lot more than I think. Um, a lot more than I think people understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's hopefully why we had you on so that now people know. Oh yeah, I hope so. I hope I've done a, a good job and people found it interesting. And um, I mean, being an event organizer, it's not for the faint-hearted, but ah. Oh, you have such a good time and you meet such a range of people and you get to work on some great, great events and all the planning and all the sweat and tears is just completely worth it when you get those perfect moments of athletes doing what they do best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the crowd go wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does sound like a lot of fun. 
And really quick question that just popped into my mind. Um, do you sort of have an estimate of like how much it costs to put on um, like a World Cup level event maybe? Yeah, so a World Cup can be anywhere in the region depending on what base facilities you have. And what I mean by that is depending on if, on if you own anything yourself as, an, as a federation. So you can be anywhere from 80,000 upwards. You, you you also have the calendar fee, so you, you have a fee to help to be on the calendar with the IFSC to make sure that you get the results service and the officials and the um, the jury presidents and the root setters, so you have that fee as well. So it can be upwards of 80,000 plus. Is a lot of that um, like the wall set up or it's just like everything adds up? Everything adds up, so holds... Walls, uh, prize money, resetting, uh, accommodation for all your staff, food for all your staff, um, all the little bits like cherry pickers if you need to, so you can work at height and podiums and yeah, medals, flower ceremonies, DJs, sound systems, um, live streaming and broadcasting and so much that goes into it but i don't think i'd have it any other way yeah okay awesome um well i think that's all of the questions that i had um thank you for joining me today um is there anything that you wanted to either like shout out or let people know where they can find you if they had any more questions oh yeah my my email address is listed on the bmc website under staff so if they had any questions about events or anything of anti-doping or para then yeah feel free to get in touch it's, it's listed there it's it's not um it's out in the public domain it's not private people can by all means get in touch and um if they're ever at an event i'm normally the one running around so they can always say hello <laughs> especially if i'm with the paraclimbing team because i'll be probably identifiable more identifiable if i'm with the paraclimbing team i reckon and if I'm running the event, I'm probably in the background. <laughs> right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll leave that link um, in the description for everything. Um, and yeah, if nothing else, thank you again. It was amazing to talk to you. No, thank you for having me. And thanks for the questions. They were really, really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, I would love to hear your discussion and thoughts in the comments below. And don't forget to like and subscribe if you enjoyed. If you're listening through a podcasting platform, I'd appreciate if you rate it five stars and you can continue the discussion through my competition climbing discord um, linked in all of the descriptions through all the platforms. Thanks again for listening.